Welcome back to Energetically You, where we talk all things optimal wellness, abundant mindset, and empowered decision-making. I'm your host, Megan Swan, a wellness coach and consultant and the founder of Megan Swan Wellness and the Sustainable Integrated Wellness Approach. I help high-performance individuals thread more wellness into their lifestyle so that it becomes a way of life and not a check mark on their to-do list. I design custom approachable wellness lifestyles because there is no one size fits all wellness. After working with me, people have more energy, confidence from within and ultimately make more aligned and empowered decisions for themselves. There is nothing I enjoy more than watching these transformations occur. Ultimately, I'm on a mission to empower more humans through optimal wellness. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Cheryl Brown Merriweather. She is the co-founder, vice president, executive director of International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. The acronym is ICARE. Cheryl brings over two decades of experience in corporate HR management at AT&T, Addiction Recovery Awareness and Adult Education, the International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. As VP and Executive Director, she oversees and directs the administration, operations, and student support, serving services for iCare's three divisions, Strategic Sobriety Workforce Solutions, that's where we're going to focus most of our conversation today, International Association for Professional Recovery Coaches, and the NET Institute. Additionally, Cheryl is the current two-term president of Go Shrim. I'm not sure what that stands for, I will ask her, and active board member of Project Opiate, and adjunct faculty member of the University of Phoenix. Cheryl graduated from the Raleigh Social Enterprise Accelerator in 2002 Winter Program, which provides mentorship, one-on-one coaching, and resources to social entrepreneurs seeking positive social change. Most recently, Success Magazine named Cheryl a winner of the inaugural 2002 Women of Influence Awards for her pioneering work in the field of addiction and recovery. In short, she's a powerhouse in this realm, and I can't wait to pick her brain and dive right in. Hi, Cheryl. I'm so excited to have you here today and get to know you better and hear all about your journey to where you are today, because it's um, so very interesting. So let's start with how are you? How's your morning been so far? Well, Megan, thank you so much for taking time to spend with me today. I am having an interesting morning. I don't know if you know this. I'm located in central Florida and we have a little hurricane. Well, it's currently labeled a tropical storm, but they say by the time it arrives tomorrow, it might be a category one hurricane. So, you know, it's, this is the second one of these in in the month or so down here. So I am well, thank you for asking, but you know, it does require you to keep an eye on the sky, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of anxiety to cap off the morning. Excited for this conversation because I really respect your work and I'm Really interested to understand sort of the trajectory of your journey. You had such a a long stint in corporate HR. Uh, I'm sure you're using all of those incredible skills for in in the current um, project, but I'd love to know sort of 
what was happening for you when you made that, you know, very drastic transition out of corporate? Well, you know, Megan, everybody has a story. And so my story probably goes back a little bit before my time in corporate America. And it started when I was a little girl growing up in my family of origin where there were some issues. My father was an alcoholic. My mother struggled with mental health issues. At that time, they called them nervous breakdowns. So, and I was an only child. So I grew up in a family that I kind of thought those things were normal. And they put things in place in terms of patterns in your life that continue into adulthood that you don't even realize until you get older and start to learn about these things. So as I grew working in corporate America and dealing with, by then, my adult family issues, I was married, I was a a mom with children and going through different personal things while trying to work, trying to go to school, you know, I could do all things, right? Things started to fall apart. At some point in time, things do when you don't have solid foundations. So I've learned so much about this. So while I was spending 20 years plus working in the corporate space, I actually started to learn about me, myself, and I, and I learned about things like codependency. It's like, oh, wow. Oh, I've heard of that, but I never knew what it was. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm the poster child for codependency. <laughs> and I learned about, you know, I'm acquiring all these letters behind my name, you know, certificate in this and master's degree in that. And I picked up some more letters, ACOA, adult child of an alcoholic parent. It's like, oh my, more letters. So, you know, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. And life just, takes you on a path that you don't always set out before you to go on. I, while I was going through the workplace, I went to college and became an adult educator. So now I work in adult education, but I am able to use the corporate experience with the addiction and recovery experience, with the HR experience, with, so it's all really come together for such a time as this. And I would not necessarily encourage others to take the path, but it has been very therapeutic. It has been very beneficial to me. I mentioned the hurricanes at the beginning of our time together and life brings storms your way sometimes and you learn about strengths. You learn about intestinal fortitude and resilience and other character strengths. So I've learned a lot about me, myself, and I on this journey and hopefully I can share some of that to help others survive the storms of life that come their way also. And that's what it's all about for me now. So is that kind of what you were looking yeah. at? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm curious if you don't mind sharing a little bit more in terms of, I too had an alcoholic father. <clears throat> he um, committed suicide when I was 17. And uh, I took that I mean, I took it on in a lot of ways, but uh, I really kind of steeped in victim mentality for the better part of two decades. And 
started to drink too much myself. Um, and I didn't hear that in your story. So I'm curious, did you maybe seek out relationships with mm. other um, people that were struggling with addiction, which I know is a common thing to do? Or do you feel like you, um, the, you know, the addictive behavior um, bubbled up in some other part of your life that wasn't alcohol? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say my heart breaks for your experience because, you know, there are no words and having not walked in your pathway, I don't know exactly what you've gone through, but I know, you know, in a related manner that that is very traumatic. So I I celebrate your journey to find wholeness and healing and now use what you've gone through to help others. So I don't want us to move forward without acknowledging that. So congratulations to you. You're a survivor. And now you're using that to help others as is what I'm trying to do. So to answer your question, yeah, I, you know, this thing I've learned so much, Megan, about substance use disorder and addiction and recovery in my own journey and now through the work that I do. And there's different types of addiction. There's substance misuse. There's also behavioral addictions. And my experience as an adult child of an alcoholic parent really played out through relationships, unhealthy relationships. I mentioned being a codependent, right? I grew up with an intent to fix. I was going to fix the circumstances of my life. I was going to fix individuals with whom I came in contact and with whom I had relationships. It resulted in me being a very high performer mm-hmm. in almost every area of my life, in my work, in my college pursuits and education and all the certifications and different roles that I had, whether in the workplace or through volunteer activities. But I sought to control those things that I could control and often to excess and in unhealthy ways. But I didn't know that. I thought I was just high functioning, right? Mm -hmm. So my drugs of choice, if you will, because the brain processes, you know, drugs sometimes as those chemicals that are released from unhealthy behaviors, not always substances. So I refer to my drugs of choice as maybe not in clinical terms, workaholism. (laughs) You know, there's also, I, I had an opportunity once to write a training course, because that's one of the things that I do about toxic faith. You know, there are people for whom, and I'm speaking of myself at the time, I was married to a husband who was a minister who had some unhealthy uh, patterns of behavior, if you will, Mm -hmm. that I later learned manifested as almost similar to equal to addictive behavior. And that system can also result in unhealthy, addictive patterns of behavior. So it was in those types of things as an adult child of an alcoholic parent trying to control my circumstances, borderline codependency, poster child, that I 
was engaged in and have now learned a lot about and now share because it's easy to focus on one thing or another. But when you learn about these things, Megan, you learn the root in terms of the impact that they have on the brain is the same. The brain does not distinguish between, on some level, a substance or an unhealthy addictive pattern of behavior, the impact to the brain in terms of the chemicals that are released and the endorphins and the good feelings and all that comes from that to a point where it becomes not so pleasant is really the same. So that's why the work that we do now just crosses over. It crosses over rate different. Our students are from different races and religions and countries and languages and socioeconomic, you know, classes because whether they're focusing on food addiction or gaming or marijuana or alcohol, they all desire to learn about this thing, this disease, this uncontrollable, overwhelming pattern of behavior, which we call addiction or substance use disorder and and related conditions. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's zoom out a little bit. I'm curious for your reflections on, you know, you had spent so much time in HR and like, what are the positive changes that you see in corporate these days, or just, you know, in companies in general and how they're dealing with, and and I'm guessing you see a lot of positive changes, or maybe you have a different opinion on that. So tell us how it is. (laughs) There's a lot going on in the corporate space around these issues. And I've seen it. I've been around long enough to see things evolve and change. And I'm very excited and optimistic and hopeful about where we are. And let me tell you why. So with respect to substance use disorder in particular, it's the um, the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. You know, the emperor has no clothes on. We see it, but we don't say anything about it. And so that is the way most work places are with respect to substance use or substance misuse. We talk about workplace culture and alcohol is very prevalent and as part of many workplace cultures. We use it for celebrations and you name it. Every opportunity to bring (laughs) it in. And from an HR perspective, it's like we typically, I, because I am an HR professional and practitioner, we engage in two places. We engage with pre-employment drug screening when necessary. And then we engage again when something happens. I talk about people crashing and burning. That's mm-hmm. usually when the HR gets involved when there's been an incident or an accident in the workplace that requires from a risk management perspective, some form of intervention. But what is happening now is, is opening the door for the opportunity for a higher level of engagement by uncovering and identifying those individuals in the workplace who are 
in recovery. So we see an increased awareness that those 23 or 24 million people in the United States who are in recovery, many of them are in the workplace. And they have lived experience, as I do, as you do. And we are well positioned to help others who may be struggling right now and seeking solutions or assistance or information, but they may not be comfortable in reaching out to the HR department and or their supervisors to talk about these issues. So the as terrible as COVID and the pandemic has been, Megan, it really has a little bit of a silver lining because there's an increased focus on mental health, mental well-being, on the level of stress and anxiety and pressure that is has been placed on the workplace and the workforce as a result of the pandemic. So because substance use disorder is the is this a side of the coin? So a coin has two sides. So there's mental health, there's substance use disorder. They are two sides of the same coin. It really has now opened the door for the workplace to seek solutions or assistance for employees who are struggling. We know that they are there. Everywhere you turn now, there's an article about it. There's, as we are today, a discussion or conversation about it. And so, therefore, there are now new and innovative solutions that are engaging the individuals, the champions, and their allies, many of whom have personal lived experience because they may be in recovery themselves or, like me, have a family member or loved one that they have experienced this journey with. So it's a very exciting time because you can look around and see others that you can reach out and connect with that can support you to make a difference. It really only takes one person. It really only takes one person who has an interest and empathy and compassion and care around these issues. And you know, some of the greatest allies are coming from your your world, the health and the wellness practitioners, coaches, they're like saying, yes, let's collaborate, let's partner because They're in the workplace, well-established, often through employee benefit programs, employee assistance programs. The wellness industry is very, has a long history of making an impact, a positive impact in the workplace around employee health and well-being. But they don't know this specialty or this niche relating to substance use disorder and addiction. So they are becoming our partners. They are becoming our allies and our champions. And they're sending their coaches to us to add this specialty 
which then allows them to be even more effective in the work that they are doing. So it's a very exciting time in the workplace, but it sadly has come about because of something that's very devastating. But we, we look for, you know, the silver lining where we can find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of silver linings that we can point to. And to your point, I see it being nothing but optimistic that, you know, not only is there a lot of shame being removed from the conversation about having mental health issues or struggling with substance abuse, misuse, um, to some extent, at least in terms of the mental wellness piece, it's an, it's a conversation that we are appreciating, you know, a lot of the work culture that we were accustomed to pre-COVID is affecting us all on some some level. And therefore, it's not uh, as much stigma attached because anyone can say, you know, I need a mental health day and um, everybody else knows exactly what they're talking about. And I also find it optimistic. I know the... Salesforce, for example, now has like a quite substantial sober force within their company. Um, I'm sure that's a pattern. Uh, I know Amazon as well has like a growing sober, they don't call it sober force. I don't know what it's called, but I mean, there's just a lot going on in terms of um, companies internally trying to be more open-minded and creating this community within. And I think that's really something that um, AA, for example, did from the beginning, but I feel like another aspect of the pandemic, they at least coincided, whether one caused the other, I don't know, but, you know, the explosion of people talking about sobriety on social media and it no longer being this, like, I want to stay anonymous in my sobriety, um, you know, (laughs) there's definitely some, uh, I know it's long, Long standing members of AA find it quite jolting to see, you know, sober AF t-shirts everywhere. And like, uh, it's, it's like a very different approach to it. But I, I guess because, you know, in my situation, I, I learned during the pandemic that it was, I I fall in the uh, spontaneous sobriety category. Meaning, I didn't go to AA. I really didn't have any support other than uh, one of my dearest friends who had, been sober for seven plus years before, you know, like I had one person to kind of bounce off my experience with. Uh Um, It was more of a decision and like a health choice. And that is the type of person that I tend to Mm -hmm. um, attract in terms of working with, you know, like I'm not equipped to deal with someone who's in like the depths of a substance abuse struggle. Um, There are people that are to do that. So I'm curious when you were talking, I was thinking like, I think it's sort of the same thing when you, on the one hand, it's like HR looking at risk management and essentially like, do we need to manage this, you know, in quotes, manage this problem um, versus you know, having coaches come in and yeah. just simply educate yeah. uh, company-wide culture. It's like, look, it's possible to have really fun events without alcohol being at the center. How can you we? Know, the fun thing, it's there's this thing called Disrupt HR. There are <laughs> groups around the country. And I even spoke to one lady, I believe she's in another country, but there's these are HR practitioners who are saying we need to challenge the way we do business. Right. And some of it is generational, Uh, you know, older folks, we're, you know, more, 
practical protocol, follow the rules, and not that rules are bad. We need rules. They're there for a reason, risk management, so to speak. But it's like, how can we accomplish the goal in new ways? Just Mm -hmm. like recovery, you mentioned AA, but there are so many different paths now to recovery. And the goal is just to get to recovery so that we save the lives and the future and and all that comes with that. So yeah, it's a time to challenge the status quo, if you will. And there are so many wonderful movements. You mentioned the sober force and we're aware of a program in Oracle. We have one of our graduates that's in Oracle. She's done a lot of work with wellness programs and she's rocking and rolling, expanding the discussions and conversations in Oracle. And we had a gentleman from Wayfair that contacted us and he's doing something with something called Way Sober. So yeah, there's, but it again, it's one individual who often is in recovery who dares to break the silence around this and say, am I alone or are there others here who, you know, for whom this is an issue? And I believe we know that there are like one third of folks don't really consume alcohol as one substance, but they are there. So to your point, we just need to create a little bit of safety in the workplace so that the system exists, whether it is through a peer. There's a big growing peer movement. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. The peers, there are, you know, people who are certified as peers at the state level. Typically, peers are individuals who have lived experience who the they're more formal than the AA in a groups, but they recognize the value of having a peer who has lived experience to then reach back and help someone else. So this peer movement is moving from the clinical world to the workplace. Let's find those champions, those peers, those allies, want to call them and engage them around this issue. Circumventing sometimes the HR organization, just because everyone is not comfortable attaching themselves to solutions that they feel may put their privacy at risk. But it's a generational thing. Younger folks in the workplace in particular are like, let's talk about it. And one of the growing movements in the HR world, so it's a culture thing, it's a leadership topic now, Megan, is the need for empathy in the workplace. There are studies and there's research and there are organizations. I have an associate named Ajit Dodani in California, and he has started an organization called Empathify You, and as a former chief financial officer, he quantifies the bottom line impact of a workplace culture that emphasizes empathy. So he is presenting to C-suite, and he's saying, you guys, empathy is a thing. 
that needs to be expanded in your work space, whether it's, you know, the workplace is now a combination sometimes of in-person and remote. So in your workspace, let's expand the skills set of your managers and others so that they are able to in, you know, connect with people on an empathetic level. And that will impact your bottom line results. It'll be win, 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 win for the company, win for the other stakeholders, the win for the employees. And so again, but that's more of a generational thing because you know, older folks, well, yeah, we appreciate empathy, but really, you mean it has an impact on the company's bottom line? <laughs> Never heard of that before. So all there's so much momentum that we're experiencing coming from so many different, you know, through many different doors, if you will. And they all converge. If you're familiar with the Venn diagram, they overlap. And at the center of it, it really is just a concern for the well-being of the, the humans who are each one of us. We, despite whatever differences we have, there are certain things that we all fundamentally need. And when you talk about substance use mis- disorders and mental health, behavioral health, which is the overarching umbrella, we have more in common and our needs are so similar. And these are some of the solutions that are being employed in the workplace, being driven by the needs of the people themselves to break the silence and open up the door, uncover and talk about these things. So it's a very exciting time and never has been more necessary than it is now because all of the statistics and the data show alarming increase in the use of substances and other unhealthy coping behaviors in response to the disruption, which is so pervasive in every area of our life now. So we have no choice but to throw a lifesaver of life vest or to someone who's struggling because they're all around us. They are each one of us in some way. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you just said. Uh, I'm curious, you have in your bio that you're the two-term president of Goshrim. What's that? Can you tell us about it? Sure. It's the Greater Orlando Society for Human Resource Management, locally known as GoSherm. SHRM is the National Organization for Society for Human Resource Management. They work through state councils and local affiliate chapters, which meet the needs of our members. Here in Orlando, we have about more than 600 members that support the businesses small, medium, large-sized companies in our area. So we are members of the professional association, and we serve the needs of our members, and by extension, their employers, the companies that they support, and by further extension, the communities in which we live. So 
I am now in my second year in that role. And it has been just a wonderful experience in part because we've just been recognized at the state level and the national level with awards that reflect a collaboration, Megan, between um, the, the SHRM organization, the local workforce board. You know, there are workforce boards around the country that get funding to make ensure that people can find jobs. And we have an organization here called Project Opioid that has been on the front line of trying to raise awareness about opioid use disorder and the fentanyl epidemic. We have just tremendous numbers of people accidentally dying from fentanyl overdoses. They don't know they're consuming fentanyl and very small amounts of that will kill. So Project Opioid received a grant. The Workforce Board received a grant to provide training to the employers and the HR professionals around how to identify substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, and provide training for the HR practitioners on how to save a life. Narcan is something that is very easily administered that can be used to save a life of someone accidentally overdosing on fentanyl or other opioids. So they contracted with my organization, I Care, to create this training program but it was the power of the collaboration between us as an education provider, the local workforce board, whose mission it was to, you know, support the business community, Project Opioid, which had a specialty in a particular crisis area, mm-hmm. and then the Go Sherm which represents over 600 HR practitioners locally. So we all came together, created an amazing program. We've trained about 100 HR practitioners in our local area and beyond. We took them through a facilitator training program that provides anyone with the knowledge and the skills and the resources that they need to deliver awareness presentations. Think lunch and learn. So we give you the slide deck and train you on what the slide says with respect to this is what, you know, your brain looks like when it's on certain substances, but we take them through. It's a, we have two versions of it a 14-hour training spread out over five weeks and a 20-hour version spread over nine weeks where the participants just do self-study. They learn about things, watch videos, read about things, and they learn. And then they come together with facilitators and talk about this with other participants in the program. And folks get so excited about going back to their workplace and doing a lunch and learn or doing a management training or doing a safety break or something around some of the topics that they're learning. But it's extending the workforce, if you will. It's, it's breaking the silence and creating safety around these conversations 
which remember I talked about the old fashioned way was just crisis management. You know, someone crashes a forklift, we're going to ship them out to EAP. We're going to, you know, get them into treatment, but this, there's not enough treatment available. Mm -hmm. Everyone that needs it needs formal treatment. Only about 10% actually are able to get a bed, which is the term that they use. We don't have enough beds available. So we've got to back it up and provide prevention. Mm -hmm. And the first part of prevention is awareness. Let's do a little education. Let's create some safe conversations around this in an environment where people can say, how do I get help? Where do I go? And that's where many of the participants in this program, yes, they're HR folks in large part, but they're also people who, like me, may have lived experience either personally or through supporting a family member, a partner, a child. You know, some of us have children who have gone through college and struggled with substance misuse and other unhealthy behaviors in college. But we're here now to reach back and try to support and help others. So that's what GoSherm has been involved in, in partnership with other organizations in our community. And we hope to replicate that uh, and spread the news about that nationwide so that others can do the same thing. Yeah, no, it's amazing work. Congratulations. I, um, so if someone is listening and maybe they're either in HR, they're in recovery, if they're not in recovery, like sort of what are the prereqs for someone who wants to um, take a certification with from iCare? Where would you direct them if they want to just bring, uh, essentially start their own community within their own company? Yeah. So thank you for asking. That's a great question. And I can ask them to reach out and connect with us through our website. It's addictionawarenessnow.com. Addictionawarenessnow.com. And that's where we advertise this facilitator program. And there are Folks who go through the program, Megan, just to learn. They they want to learn for personal development reasons about this, this area, if you will. Yeah. And so they can get a certificate of completion. They either completed a 14-hour or 20-hour education program. But then there are those who want to become a certified facilitator and have letters behind their name, CFAA, or for those that are HR practitioners, CFAA-HR, which is the 20-hour course, which, by the way, is approved for recertification credit with SHRM. Everybody that has a SHRM certification knows that they need to get recertification credit. So they can come to addictionawarenessnow.com and sign up for one of those classes. Again, the HR class is the 20-hour version. We're offering it again in March of next year. We're just wrapping up the third 
uh, series for this year. We're planning to offer it again next year. The first one will be in March. So we are enrolling folks now and after the first of the year to go through the program. But we have so many endorsements. And again, we just won a national estate level and national level award for it. But I love to put people in contact with people that have gone through the program. And those are the champions, if you will, who then say, this is how we're using this in our workplace. So I can connect them with other facilitators that have completed the program that are actually in the workplace doing these workshops and these lunch and learns and others who just have a plan to do so. And the amazing thing is organizations come in all sizes across all industries. We have, you know, folks who work in nonprofit organizations who've gone through it, folks that are in large multinational corporations like Oracle that have gone through it and used it. And we have people that have come to us from faith communities. So, and I have one of our facilitators works with college students on college campuses. So it's the type of training that crosses any type of organization small, medium, large, and across multi-industries. So, and yeah, really applicable in so many, so many spheres. Um, so I'm curious, is it available uh, globally or is it really yes. more U.S.-based? Yes. Yes, we have, our training programs are in English, but because they're online, that we have trained facilitators and coaches, certified professional recovery coaches from 40 nations. And so it is amazing to participate in the experience because you, you know, sometimes we can have tunnel vision and think that everybody thinks like us and everybody, you know, looks at things the way we do. So that's why the blended platforms allow for rich discussion and idea generation from people, not only through different um, worldviews, if you will, but they bring their entire self to the conversation. So let me tell you my background, my story, and this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? What do you suggest? So it really, and we keep them together. We try to keep the participants together. We have a closed private Facebook group and a private closed LinkedIn group. So whether you can, you prefer one over the other, we are there to support you with ongoing networking opportunities within a community, within a tribe, because that's how people in recovery thrive in community. And that's how those of us that do this work keep oil in our lamps, because we have to be careful and mindful that we don't, you know, also experience burnout or discouragement or feel overwhelmed at the task that lies before us. Because at the end of the day, Megan, I try to be light about it, but this is a very serious thing. We're talking life and death. Mm -hmm. And that's why people in recovery are so grateful to find other people in recovery who are doing this work. We partner and collaborate and support one another because we know the importance of what we're doing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the starfish story. I always talk about the starfish storm in Florida. So we have beaches and you get up in the morning (laughs) and the starfish. 
The starfish. Get really emotional. Oh, you haven't heard the starfish. Oh my gosh! So here's the story. I first heard it years ago. It's a chicken soup for the soul. But it's basically you have an old wiser person walking one way down the beach, and and another young person coming in the opposite direction toward them. And you know it's morning, so there's starfish scattered on the beach. So as the two get closer to one another, the older person sees this younger person looks like almost a ballet move you know bend down and then do the I don't know what you call it but the the arm goes up and looks like he's making this flinging motion and in fact that's what he's doing he's flinging starfish one at a time out into the ocean and this older wise person says my goodness as they get close to one another what are you doing and it's like well I'm saving these starfish one at a time throwing them into the ocean so they don't burn up and dry out when the sun comes up they'll die and this person says just look around you there must be thousands of starfish on the beach what in the world possible difference do you think that you're making and the young person bends down picks up one starfish throws it out over into the waves and says well it made a difference for that one and that is the work that we do in recovery the problem is massive there are millions of people suffering and dying it is a nasty thing it is horrible but there's so much hope that we have if we make a difference in the life of one person because if you save one individual you're transforming that person and by extension their family by extension, their workplace, a broader community, maybe it's a faith community, or, you know, just future generations. Because as an adult child of an alcoholic parent, I know the devastating harm that can come from that unhealthy pattern. But I also know that pattern can be interrupted. It can be broken. It can be changed. It can be reversed. And then the good that can come from that transformation can inure to future generations. And for example, the work that we're doing, Megan, we're impacting countless people through just our conversation and the work that you do ongoing. So that's the starfish story. You can Google it. It's (laughs) well. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I think that's a beautiful place to leave this off. And we'll have all of the uh, links that you mentioned and a few that you didn't um, in the show notes for people that want to reach out and connect with you and learn more about the incredible work that you do and the certifications that you offer. Any, Any sort of parting words beyond the beautiful starfish analogy? I think it's classic. Oh, thank you. It's not mine. I borrowed it, but I probably (laughs) embellish it a little bit more, but it's powerful. And so my closing word is just that it only takes one person. It only takes one person. And that's why the peer movement is so powerful. That's why the sober curious movement is so effective and is growing because it creates a voice. It gives a voice to an individual who otherwise would be hiding or covering or not safe to even ask for help. 
So if we can just begin to take the baby step and create a conversation as we are having today with one individual, that carries me through my day. Our conversation today carries me through our day, carries me probably through the week because this is so much fun. So I thank you for the opportunity, but I encourage others to, you know, you have to use wisdom and look around, but we're there. There are so many of us around you. And if you can just take the first step, the first time I told my story, I was terrified, but I was in a training class and the facilitator said, we're talking about diversity here. Does anybody have a diversity story they can share? And another subject for another day, but I was adopted Mm. as a child and I am biracial. So, I mean, that classifies as, you know, a diversity story, but I had never shared it because there's a lot of shame. You mentioned the shame and the stigma and from certain generations being born out of wedlock was like not a good thing. There's nasty words that people say, (laughs) Mm -hmm. those, you know, that people say about those kinds of things. But I dared to tell my story in a small group. And it just broke things down. And someone said, oh, first of all, thank you for sharing that to courage. And then let me tell you my story. Or let me tell you I know someone. Or let me tell you in my family. So that one opportunity to break the silence, if you will, opens the door for others to say, me too. Me too. That was the power of the Me Too movement, wasn't it? Me too. Mm -hmm. Me too. So that's the takeaway. It's just, you know, of course, you have to use some discretion there. But if you can reach out and connect and share just a little bit, it will build your confidence. It will build your competence. And it's like the ripple. You drop a a pebble in a pond Mm -hmm. and it creates the ripples. Well, that's what telling your story does in the lives of others. It creates a ripple effect for others to say, me too, me too, me too. And, that, and that's the momentum that we're trying to create. So I welcome the opportunity to do whatever I can to support you and or others. Just reach out and connect with me. We'll make it happen. We'll go save some lives. amazing thank you so much cheryl i look forward to um being in touch and sharing this beautiful conversation we had i think you're right it's gonna touch at least one life that it needs to touch if not multiple so uh we'll be we'll be in touch thank you thank you so much stay well stay safe now i'm gonna go batten down some hatches from a storm coming my way (laughs) (laughs) bye Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you and I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. I would be really appreciative if you feel so called to to support the show by either subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast platform, leaving us a review, and passing this episode or another favorite episode on to a friend. I hope you have a beautiful week wherever you are in the world. Sending you my love.